It really is a joy to gather together today on Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we acknowledge and believe as Christians that Jesus is the Son of God. And furthermore, He is the embodiment of God Himself, who came to earth, who lived a perfect life, who was persecuted and suffered and died on the cross. However, the Scriptures bear witness to the fact that He did not stay in the grave, but on the third day He rose to life again. He defeated death and sin and made a way for His followers to live a new life as well. But the beauty of Easter is the resurrection. And see, by Christ's death on the cross, sins are paid for. But by the resurrection, life is granted. Without the resurrection, there is no life. And I would even argue, what good is it to have your sins paid for and have the fine gone if you don't have new life? And so both must take place. The death on the cross to pay for sin and the resurrection to give us new life. What's even more remarkable that is not not only does Jesus have the ability to save people from their sins and eternal punishment, but he also has the full authority to do so. Jesus is the one who says, I can, I will redeem. And so if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the authority of Jesus demonstrated in his teaching, but today we're going to see that authority further demonstrated by his power to heal and restore to life. And so, if you have your copy of Scripture, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible, there's going to be two numberings there, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So this would be page number 6 in your pew Bible. So about three-fourths of the way through your your text there. Now, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7... Matthew transitions into telling the reader about Jesus' healing ministry in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now, we know that Jesus healed countless thousands of people during his earthly ministry. And while the the gospel writers don't uh, record every single one of those healings, there's a a proportional number as to the, the larger number that we actually know about. And the stories that are told are really used as examples of all those things. But they do record uh, these things, and what they record is very telling. In Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, we saw how Jesus really breaks social and religious code to touch and heal a leper, someone who was incredibly sick with a skin disease, and he does this out of sheer compassion for this person. And in this morning's text, chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, we see how Jesus pushes the boundaries once again to heal someone who is in desperate need. And so look with me at Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Now the story is also told in Luke chapter 7. It's a parallel account and gives us really additional insights into our text. However, the, there are similar stories also in Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel, which may recount the same event, but we're not exactly sure. And before we go into those, I want to look at just what's in front of us here. We know that prior to this point, Jesus had been traveling all throughout the region of Galilee. And if you were to look at a map of Israel, even to this day, uh, there's, a, there's the northernmost region, that's the region uh, of Galilee, uh, this, the middle section is what's called Samaria, and the lowest uh, section, the southernmost section, is Judea. So there's really three main parts to Israel. Jesus is ministering in the northernmost region. His hometown is Nazareth, which is also in Galilee. But according to chapter 4, verse 12, he hears that John the Baptist has been arrested, and then he relocates from Nazareth uh, to the fishing village of Capernaum. Capernaum. And Capernaum will be his base of operations all the way through the events of Matthew chapter 15. And so here in verse 5, we see Jesus returning to this new city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, if you were to look at it, uh, literally means the city of Nahum, was nestled in the northernmost shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's not a large city, maybe like 1,500 people at the time, but it was an important fishing village for the region and a home of many of the disciples. And so, after coming down from the mountain, which he was preaching from, and from healing the leper, he makes his way to Capernaum to carry out his ministry. But upon his arrival, he is approached by someone in need. Now, Luke, Luke 7, records the same occurrence. But we read that the centurion actually doesn't come first. He sends a delegation of Jewish leaders to entreat Jesus to come. Let me just read this for you to kind of get this in your mind. Uh, In Luke 7, it says, And the centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. But when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. And so this centurion, this man, is is well known and he's well respected by the people in Israel. We know that there was really no Roman outpost in Capernaum. There was no fortress there. But there would have been, no doubt, a military presence. And considering that the centurion literally is someone who's in charge of a hundred soldiers, he was uh, more prominent in that area. He would have been well known in the community. And normally the Romans were despised. The Jews hated the Romans. They were an occupying force. And generally speaking, the Romans made no bones about uh, detesting a lot of the culture and practices and rituals of the Jews. And there was kind of this blood feud between both of these peoples. But this person, this centurion, this Roman soldier in particular, he was respected because he had a love for the Jewish people and even going so far as to build them their local synagogue. And so by sending this Jewish delegation, the centurion, he may have been trying to ingratiate himself to Jesus in order to for Jesus not to be skeptical of him. And of course, Matthew mentions none of all of that. Matthew really just jumps into uh, the centurion himself actually coming to Jesus, perhaps after the delegation has already come, and he's asking Jesus again to help him. Matthew says back in his text that he implored Jesus. Another translation would render this, he beseeched him. 
Rendered also, this could be a summons or an entreat to call on. However, the, the wording is used in the Greek. We know that this, uh, scholars have rendered this to be uh, with a sense of courtesy. He's courteous about this. The centurion doesn't come and make demands. He doesn't come up to him and say, all right, Jewish teacher, I want you to come and heal my slave right now. He does nothing of the sort. He entreats him earnestly for help. He pleads with him. He begs him. He beseeches him. Now, what is the issue? Look at verse 6. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now, he noted, if you want to note the title here, he calls Jesus Lord. It's a sign of respect. It's really akin to the word sir. This man doesn't probably know that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't understand who Jesus ex- exactly is. But nonetheless, we see that he, res- he responds to him and he holds him in, in the highest respect. And then he tells him that his servant is paralyzed. Now, interestingly enough, the Greek word that's used in the original here could be rendered either slave or servant. It could also be rendered son or child. And if, in fact, this is the same story of John chapter 4, then it could have been his son. But nonetheless, here it's rendered as servant. Normally, a Roman soldier wouldn't have thought much of his own servant. They were considered as property in that culture. But this is no ordinary soldier. He's no ordinary centurion. We already know he has a love for the Jewish people. He has devotion to them. He seems to be an earnest man who's pleading for the life of his servant. And so here he comes and he entreats the Lord that his servant is lying paralyzed and fearfully tormented. And what is the reason for the paralysis? Well, we don't know. It could have been that he had an injury that caused this. It could have been a sickness. It could have been caused by a seizure. We don't know what the reason is for the infirmity. But we do know that the servant is in pain, and he says he's fearfully tormented. How bad does something have to be to be fearfully tormented? Pretty bad. How does Jesus respond? Now, we saw from Mark's account of Jesus healing the leper that he's actually motivated and moved with compassion. We have no reason to doubt that that's the same motivation here. So look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, we should not miss the significance of this decision. Because for Jews to interact with these Romans was sort of a, not a, a highly thought of thing. For Jesus to heal the servant, he has to plan on going actually to the Roman centurion's home. And again, the Romans were regarded as Gentiles, and therefore they were spiritually unclean. And no self-respecting Jew would be caught dead in the home of an uncircumcised, defiled, pagan Roman. You just didn't do that. That's, that's not called for. But yet Jesus is willing. He's willing to go. But the centurion, he certainly must have been aware of the problem, because look at verse 8. After Jesus agrees to go to his house, the centurion says in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now certainly this could have pertained to the centurion's understanding of Jewish purification. If this is the man who built their temple, he must have had some idea about what their laws pertain to, all the rituals and the rites they went through. Perhaps he really didn't believe that he was personally, spiritually worthy enough of such a righteous guest. That certainly could be. But either way, this is an astonishing claim. The centurion believes that Jesus is able to heal the servant without even having to come to his house. He can do so 
remotely without, with only speaking a word. Now, there's no place else in the Gospels where such an occurrence is recorded. In every other situation, we see Jesus either healing by a touch, or at least he's in front of the person to speak to them. And so the question is, well, how does this centurion know that Jesus is able to heal his servant remotely through even speaking a word? Well, the issue is, and the answer is, because of authority. I want you to look at how the centurion reasons. I want you to follow his thought process here. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. What's the reason? He says, For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now I want to work through this here. I want to, he's making a comparison between himself and Jesus. Okay, Himself and Jesus. In which this becomes the basis of why he believes what he believes about Jesus. But I want to start, with, let's just go from what's simple to what's more complex. Let's start with the centurion. All Roman authority at that time was vested in the emperor and then was handed down. And so the emperor ruled over everything in the entire empire. However, he permitted himself to delegate that authority to officers and generals and governors and other people underneath him, so that if an officer went to somebody, a citizen, and gave a command, it was as if that command was coming from the emperor himself. That's how their government functioned. Okay, Authority was vested and then delegated. Now the centurion himself was under such authority, but being a person of position and prominence, he wielded that authority over the men in his charge and certainly over the citizens. And the result was that he could go to one of his subordinates and he could tell them, go. And he would go. He could say, hey, you, come here. And they had to come here because, again, this is the authority of the emperor. He could tell his servant or his slaves, do this. And it was expected to be done. So the centurion could wield the emperor's authority simply by speaking a word to his subordinate. And it's this reality that he's applying to Jesus. Notice that the centurion uses this word, also. Also, this word is important because he's making the connection between himself and Jesus. And the implication is this. You're a man under authority, and I also am a man under authority. The difference is the centurion's authority comes from the emperor, but the question for us is, well, then where does Jesus get his authority? The answer is from God. From God. See, the centurion is asking Jesus to do the miraculous. He's asking Jesus to do only what he knows that God can do. Way back in even John chapter 3, the, the Pharisee named Nicodemus, he affirms that the Jewish leaders, they know that Jesus had been sent by God. And how, what's, the, what's the evidence of how they know he's been sent by God? And they cite, he cites the amazing works that Jesus does. The miracles, the signs, the wonders, all of those authenticate the fact that Jesus Christ has come from heaven, from God. And so everybody sees this, at least on some level. The Jewish leaders see it, and this Roman centurion, he also sees it as well. This testifies to his divine power. Now, the centurion likely has no idea that he's actually speaking to God himself. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Lord of glory. He's the King of kings and Lord of all lords. But yet he acknowledges that Jesus has come from God and is able to wield the power of God under the authority of God. And he treats him accordingly. He treats him with respect and honor and decency. 
And how does Jesus respond to this? Again, the centurion has kind of taken a leap here. No one else is seeing what he sees, but the centurion is a man under authority. He's able to wield that power, that authority. He assumes the very same of Jesus, claiming that, okay, if God can do these kinds of things miraculously, I believe you can do it as well. Therefore, you can heal my servant. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. In the original text, Matthew uses the Greek word thaumadzo, which is describing Jesus' reaction. This word means to wonder at, to marvel. It's really this sort of awestruck feeling that you have when you see something amazing. Normally, the crowds were marveling at Jesus and his teaching, but here, Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. Because this is big faith, isn't it? It's easy to have a little bit of faith. This is big faith. What does that mean? We understand that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that are not seen, according to Hebrews 11.1. Faith, therefore, consists of knowledge, Assent and trust. In other words, it's one thing to believe that Jesus can heal. It's one thing to say, you know, you know, by profession, I'm pretty sure. I think you can heal a person. That's one thing to believe that that's possible. It's quite another thing to place somebody else's life into his hands. Again, it's a matter of speaking something versus actually putting your, your, uh, your belief and your life in their hands. And so, for this, in this case, the centurion, there was no plan B. Either Jesus is able to heal this this man's servant and he's going to live, or this fearfully tormented person who's suffering is going to die. And so he's making this entreaty, first by the religious leaders, and second, he comes by himself. Essentially, he's saying, I know that you've come from God, I know that you can heal my servant, and I know that if you speak a word, it will be done. And Jesus is astounded by this. So much so that he turns around and he tells the disciples that were following him. It's as if he says, do you see this? Do you see what's going on, men? What he's asking of me? Do you see how he trusts in what I can do? He wants them to take notes. He says, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Not only is this a tremendous affirmation of the centurion's faith and certainly an encouragement to him, I mean, you're standing there before Jesus, you've come to him with an entreaty, and he says, wow, and he marvels at your faith, you're thinking, I don't really know what this means, but I think it's good. So this is an affirmation, this is an encouragement, but I want to tell you something else. This is also a harsh rebuke to the crowd. How so? Why is this a, a rebuke? Well, because the people of Israel were the people of God, or at least they were supposed to be. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans 9.4, Israel had been given the adoption as sons. They'd been given the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. They'd been given everything. They had godly heritage in the fathers. They had the position of blessing. God had given this people every single point of blessing you could give anybody. Nobody else in the world for 1,500 years, was as blessed as Israel was in the eyes of God. They had been the people through whom 
God was going to bless the whole world by sending the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who's going to save people. And when God finally sent the Messiah, he gave, or he came, I should say, as a Jew from Nazareth. And he came to the people of God to offer salvation. However, John 1.11 says this, when he came to his own, his own people, that is, they did not receive him. Jesus did not get the reception he deserved. You would have thought that the Jews would have seen him coming when he arrived, saw that he was the Messiah, and they would have rejoiced and sang praises to God. They've been waiting for so long, and they would have seen, and they would have testi- he would have testified by his miracles, by his words, by his signs, everything, that he was the Messiah, that they would have welcomed him in with open arms. But they didn't. They didn't. Because of their stubbornness and their hardness of heart, they turned on him. They turned against him. And after only three years of ministry, three years of ministry, they arrested him. They ran him through a false trial. They executed him on a Roman cross and put him outside the city. That's some way to treat your Messiah, isn't it? But even while he ministered and traveled throughout all of Israel... Very few Jews believed in him. Some did, but a large number did not. Even his own disciples, they struggled to believe in him. I was reading this week, there are seven cases in the Gospels where Jesus applauds a person's faith, but there are so many more examples when he actually chastises people for their lack of faith. Just a couple of examples. Later on in chapter 8, the disciples are going across the lake in a boat, and there's a storm that comes around. And they begin to lose their minds. They freak out, even though Jesus is sitting and sleeping in the back of the boat. They become very afraid, and Jesus wakes up. He rebukes the wind. He rebukes the sea. And he turns to them in verse 26, and he says, why are you afraid? He says, oh, you men of little faith. Chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus walks on water. He walks on water, and Peter, when he sees it, he says, I want to do the same thing. And so the Lord grants him the ability to to step out of the boat and begin to walk on the top of the water. But then all of a sudden he begins to panic and realizes that he's walking on water. Makes you panic, doesn't it? He begins to panic and he, he starts to sink. And Jesus grabs him and pulls him back up and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This was a recurring theme for the disciples. Struggling in unbelief. Struggling to grow their faith. But here they're all put to shame when they see the faith of this pagan Gentile. Again, the Jews, they hated the Romans. So for this centurion to have a greater faith than they did was an embarrassment to them. But Jesus intends this embarrassment to sting. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, I can't overstate the shocking nature of this declaration. See, The Jews envisioned that heaven was going to be a place of peace and rest. And this would have featured also a scene of a a heavenly banquet. They imagined heaven as a banquet 
where they were reclining at this table. In this dinner banquet, they would have been able to be seated with all the heroes of the faith. All their heroes were going to be there at this banquet. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others. Certainly Elijah, Elisha, Daniel. All the heroes that they would have loved and read about in the Bible would have been seated there at the table. And at the head of the table would have been their Messiah. So they longed for this this event. In fact, we read about this in many, many places. Uh, One key text actually occurs in Isaiah 25. In Isaiah 25, this chapter of Isaiah's prophecy showcases visions of Israel's future in the kingdom. And there's one vivid scene that features this banquet. Let me read this for you in Isaiah 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That reads like an Easter verse, doesn't it? But that's, their, that's the imagery that they had in their minds of this heavenly banquet. And it comes right from Scripture. Every Jew in Israel would have longed for this banquet to recline at the table with all their fathers and with the Messiah But in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus shocks them. He shocks them with the news that, verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He tells them it's not just going to be Jews at this banquet. You thought it was just you folks talking to the Jewish people? You thought it was just you? It's not. It's more than that. He says, no, many will come. Many will come from around the world. From east and west, that's talking about the whole world here. He says all these people are going to come from east and west around the world, and they're going to come and they're going to recline at this table, and they're going to be there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the kingdom consists now of Jews and Gentiles. This is shocking to Jewish ears. But we're the people of blessing. We're the ones who have the law and all the temple service. We're the ones through whom the Messiah comes. What do you mean that the rest of the world is going to come with us? That's always been the plan, by the way. God was supposed to be using Israel as a channel of blessing, and He did. But that blessing wasn't just to one people. It was to all the peoples of the world. And even now, right now, every single tribe, tongue, nation, it does not matter where you come from, your heritage, your history, your culture, it does not make a difference. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, He is your Lord. And you'll find eternal dwelling. You will be at this banquet with Him. And this Roman centurion was an example of the kind of Gentile who would be reclining in heaven with Christ. And then he shocks them even further. If that wasn't enough to give him a coronary. Now there's something else. Look at verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom. What is that? That's a reference to the people of Israel. That's a reference to them. 
See, every single Jew believed that they were going to heaven simply because they were Jewish. That by default, they were God's chosen people. And many Jews to this day even still believe that. They don't need to confess any sins, they'll tell you. They don't have to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. All they have to do is be a good Jew, do the good thing, and then they'll end up in heaven with all their fathers and with God. But Jesus destroys that here. Just because they belong to God's visible kingdom, just because they're Israelites, does not automatically guarantee them heaven. John chapter 1 again, Jesus came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. Verse 12, the next verse, but to those who did receive Him, here it is, who believed in His name, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to be called children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. So it doesn't matter where you come from, your heritage, your lineage, just because your parents were faithful believers, none of that makes any difference to God. Yeah, but my, my family, they, they brought me to church when I was a kid. God doesn't care if your faith is not genuine. Yeah, but my great-grandfather built this building. Doesn't make a difference. Our names are on the pews. Doesn't make a difference. We have the family Bible sitting in there, in our house, and we look at it. It collects dust, but it's there. God doesn't care about that. Those who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to be called children of God. Those who were born, not of blood, not of flesh, not of man, but of God. God makes you a believer. And so, in order to go to heaven, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Not just intellectually. I believe that a man named Jesus existed. That's not it. You must also believe practically. In other words, you must put your life and your future into His hands. Just like the centurion did. His faith has, as I like to say, arms and legs. It goes somewhere, does something. It's not just cerebral, not just intellectual, not just something on paper. No, my heart, my life believes and trusts in You, Lord, that You're able to do what You say You're going to do. He says, but to those who don't do that, to those who do not believe in Christ, who reject Him, who turn away from Him, who live their life and think that they're just all set, He says, they will be cast out into outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about hell. Hell. But He says, for those who trust in Him, they will join the Lord at the heavenly banquet and there will be joy and gladness My friends, there's not going to be any pain, no sorrow, no sickness, no sin. Ever feel like you're just weighed down? I cannot get out of my own way. I try to do a good thing, but there's like five terrible things that happen around it. I I get tired of just hearing myself talk sometimes. I'm like, man, just close your mouth already. I just seem to just get myself in trouble over and over again. My heart just ruins me. Ever happen to you? Maybe it's just me. But in heaven there's no pain, no sorrow, no sin, no shame, no guilt, no condemnation. Only glory, peace, praise, joy, purity, perfection, God's 
perfect law and righteousness. It's not just sitting on a cloud with a harp, my friends. No, it's living a vibrant life of joy and praise with God, with every saint who's ever lived in a perfect dwelling. Is that not what we want? To have a world like this, but better, without the stain of sin? That's heaven. And Christ is there. There could be nothing else in Christ to be there. That's good enough for me. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he partook in a meal that foreshadowed this heavenly banquet. We know it as the Lord's Supper. That's what we're going to partake in this morning. At this meal, the disciples, they reclined with Jesus. There's a sweet place in John's Gospel where it talks about him leaning back and placing his head against Jesus' chest and just laying into him and and being close to, to Jesus. Imagine being so close to Christ you could hear his heart beating through his chest. Can you imagine? That's what John did. But at this meal, they're reclining and they're eating with Jesus and they're drinking with Jesus and celebrating. But then he tells them, that he's going to die. And he grabs a piece of bread and he breaks it. And he tells them that this breaking of the bread represents the fact that his body is going to be broken for them. And then he grabs a cup of wine, one of the four cups that are there, and he lifts it up and he says, this is the symbol, this is, this is my blood, which will be shed on the cross for you. And they all ate and drank together at this table, at this earthly banquet, longing anxiously for the heavenly one to come. And then after that night, after that dinner, Jesus is arrested, he's tried, he's pronounced guilty even though he's not, he's whipped and he's scourged, and then he's nailed hands and feet to the cross. And the Bible tells us that it's by this death he pays the punishment for our sins. The Bible also teaches that he rose to life again on the third day. That's Easter Sunday. That's why we're here. To celebrate the resurrection. Where he bursts forth from the grave. He puts death to death, as they used to say. He resurrects in order to bring new life to those who would believe. And again, this is why we celebrate. Our sins are forgiven by his death. And our eternal future comes by His resurrection. For us, my friends, Easter is a celebration of life. Life in Christ. What a marvelous gift. What happens to the centurion's servant? Look at verse 13. After all of this, Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Jesus never goes to the house. He never steps a foot inside. He only speaks a word and the servant is healed completely. It's remarkable. Remarkable. Salvation comes the same way for us. We trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And by His word we have life. It's by His promise that we have life. But I fear that many people today believe they can just live a good life, not hurt anybody, not do anything too bad, and they'll be okay. Yet the Bible tells us explicitly that you must confess your sins to God. 
to Him directly. You don't, even, you don't have to come to me or anybody else. You can talk to us. We can pray with you. But the bottom line is that you must go to God with your sins and confess your sins to Him and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope and only salvation. God, if I have any chance to make it to the end, if I have any hope of eternal life, it has to be in Christ alone and nothing else. And not just in redeemed in this life, but also in the next. And according to Revelation 19, my friends, there is a heavenly banquet. We know this to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all who belong to Christ are gathered together there. And the Lord declares in Revelation 19.9, He says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, These are the true words of God. Let me ask you a question. Will you be there? Will you be at this heavenly banquet that He's talking about? Reclining at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the saints, all those who've believed God and trusted in Him for life and have lived a life before Him? With the apostles, with all the saints? With the Roman centurion? You're going to see Him? Will you be there with Christ? You have to ask yourself that question because if you don't know, or if your answer is no, something has to be done about that. What must be done? Even right now, where you sit, where you're listening, turn to Christ. Turn, you, don't, you don't have to go and save the world or do something big. It's not like that. Turn to Christ. And whatever your sins are, whatever is plaguing you, whatever you know you've done wrong, whatever you know you've done against God, confess your sins to Him and say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And then place your faith in Jesus Christ who hung on a cross to pay for you. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, then He has truly saved you from that punishment. And you will be given eternal life. And you'll be forgiven. What a marvelous gift. My friends, it is a free gift. It's a free gift. It's amazing. People... People come and we get together, we sit. And when a person hears that for the first time, it doesn't sound quite right, doesn't it? You're thinking, well, wait a second. It's got to be a hitch. It's got to be a hitch. Nothing is free. You're right. What did it cost? It cost the perfect life and perfect death of Christ to pay for you. But grace means He gives it to you out of His compassion. And you must believe. You must trust Him. And say, yes, Lord, I trust You. I need Your life. I need Your forgiveness. And by His grace, He gives it. What a remarkable thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a tremendous gospel, what a tremendous bit of news that we have in the Scriptures given to us that we could be made right with You because You sent Your Son to give His life for us. That we don't have to go and do anything big and miraculous and worthy of honor, worthy of respect, worthy of saving. No, the Bible says that it's by Your grace, through faith, that we're saved. 
It's not of ourselves. It's a gift that you give. It's not as a result of any work I could do. Otherwise, I'd boast. I'd brag about it. But rather, we are your creation, your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Lord, when you save us, when you redeem us, when you change us, then you set your your spirit in us and then we begin to just explode with love for you. We desire to do good works because we love you. But our salvation comes because you've taken pity on us and you've shown us mercy. And so Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anybody here who has never put their faith in you, never trusted in you, that they would stop running and stop playing games and put their faith squarely on Christ and say, save me, Lord. And by your kindness and compassion and grace, you do. We can trust your promises, Lord, because you're faithful. And so, Lord, thank you for this news. Thank you for this message. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.